Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 26th, 2023. Um, over the last few months, we've done a couple of shows on black art. One uh, with the historian Glenda Gilmore, um, who's written a wonderful biography of the uh, African-American uh, artist Ramare uh, Bearden. Uh, the book is, is a beautiful uh, work. Uh, and as it happened, um, earlier this week, we did a show with George McCallman, um, who has a new book out, An Illustrated Black American History. It's a, really a lovely book. Um, and he has an image of uh, Bearden, uh, Ramare Bearden, in the book. So I'm thrilled that continuing this theme, we have another show and another, uh, another writer who is committed to um, making sense of black art, a uh, book out early next week by my guest, Zaria Ware. Uh, the book is called Black Art. The Audacious Legacy of Black Artists and Models in Western Art. And uh, Zaria is joining us uh, from her home uh, just outside Detroit. Uh, Zaria, welcome uh, and congratulations. It's another beautiful book, uh, very well produced. Uh, and Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm intrigued though, Zaria, why the project? Tell me a little bit about yourself and, and, and what inspired you to, to write this book where you collect a lot of black art of one kind or another, sometimes work done by black artists, other times where uh, artists are representing black people? Well, black art for me was sort of a passion project because I, I speak about it in the book that growing up, I just loved history. I always loved art. Um, I, As an eight-year-old, I was always going to museums and going to bookstores reading about the Titanic or Queen Elizabeth. But slowly but surely, you start to notice as a Black person in the United States that you're a little different. And you also start to notice that in movies and entertainment, the, the historical fiction movies that I loved, I didn't notice anyone who looked like me. And so the first um, impression that I got of Black history um, always was about either the transatlantic slave trade or about the civil rights movement, which those two moments by themselves, of course, are very important to United States history, to Black history, but they're not the only histories. But when they're presented that way, it makes you feel as if Black history really has nothing else to offer. And so for me, when I started doing research for Black art, it really was about completely getting rid of those assumptions or the wrong assumption that Black history really has nothing else to offer within the art or history world and trying to bring that into the world and show everyone, you know, that Black people have been a part of history um, since medieval times and um, have given and um, supported um, wonderful histories throughout time. And so it was just important to me to show everyone that and to um, bring these histories to light and showcase them in this way. Zaria, uh, I've been spending the morning and afternoon looking at the book. It seems to be divided into two. On the one hand, you have a section on black artists and another on models. Um, is there anything that ties these two areas together? I mean, obviously, it's all black art of one kind or another. Uh, but how do you bridge uh, 
black artists and models in, in, in Western art? So black art really is a journey or an exhibit. I wanted to, the reader to be able to go on. And so black for, for black art, when it comes to part one, um, the models, it's showing how black models uh, really were a part of um, the art world or European art world um, since medieval times. And it goes through six different sections showing that in these distinct moments in time, black people um, had a huge impact within the art world, either being depicted by um, European artists or even posing for European artists. But this progression um, from medieval times to the 19th century um, then bridges into part two, which is the artists showing how now after, you know, a thousand years of really just being subjects of art um, for major Black artists, which really were the first Black artists, um, took the paintbrush really into their own hands and um, started this movement and really um, started the or gave the support needed or um, even the legacy needed for the Harlem Renaissance to begin in the 20s. Yeah, and those artists are Robert Selden Duncanson, um, Edward Mitchell Bannister, uh, Edmonia Lewis and um, Henry Asawa Tana. We'll come to these four artists later and um, the Harlem Renaissance. But let's talk a little bit about the models. Um, and I have to admit, I've never really thought about Western art in this context, but I was particularly intrigued with... Um, with some of uh, the, the the images that you use, I you know I hadn't really looked at Western art in this context. For example, uh, the Adoration of the Magi uh, by uh, Hieronymus Bosch uh, you feature in the book. Why? What's so interesting about art like this, which is uh, more than five hundred years old, almost six hundred years old? So what's so amazing about this section about uh, medieval art is that during medieval times, um, the adoration of the Magi was a very uh, popular um, theme in art. And so you see medieval and Renaissance artists really depicting um, the story of really the, the three Magi visiting the baby Jesus. And at some point um, during really the 14th century, all the three magi ended up being depicted as like the three parts of the known world. So that would have been Asia and then Europe and then um, Africa. And so now you have Balthazar, which was um, one of the figures or one of the magi being depicted as an African man. And so if you look in throughout European art and, and mo modern museum collections, you'll see that um, black African men are shown in this way, um, whether that's in tapestries or oil paintings. And so it's really amazing because there are literally hundreds of these um, depicting black men. And what's so cool about this also is that when you look at all of the individual individualization of these figures, you see that they all were really modeled mostly um, off of real figures where even though we don't know who particularly they were, we do know that many of them were modeled after um, African men who were living. And so they weren't just from um, the artist's imagination. Sarah, we've done many, many shows on race, particularly in America. And we've had historians, in fact, we had one a couple of weeks ago who argued that the idea of race is a modern invention that didn't used to exist. In your research and in your work um, in models, uh, for example, the, uh, the adoration of the Magi, for viewers of this art, would they have looked at this art 
in in racial terms would have they would they have noticed that the color of the skin of of some of the people in these pictures are different from the color of the skin of others would they have seen blackness shall we say Yes, definitely. I would say um, throughout time, really, it, it was a diverse place. And so even people who weren't aware or, or really hadn't met someone from another place, let's say France or Germany, they would have seen this art or they would have known about um, the existence of other peoples through stories and, of course, art and music. But even during um, um, medieval times, when you look at the, the various courts, it was normal to have um, African musicians. It was actually popular to have African musicians. And so for a person of that time period to see this painting, it would not have been strange. In fact, the adoration of the Magi was such a popular um, theme. Um, it would have been normal for people to see this. Um, and then when you talk about it just in terms, of, in a broad term, when you talk about even in ancient times um, into um, medieval times, it would not have been strange to see someone of another race, depending on, you know, the location, the locale, usually in big cities, but it really just depends. It's a case by case basis of where you lived, because of course, in some places, you would never have seen someone who was African in your entire lifetime, perhaps, um, but you still could have seen this art. And so they were very aware of other races. Um, and of course, the um, influence of other cultures as well maybe even but even with when it comes to racism or things of that nature it was not at all as it was during the transatlantic slave trade and so they wouldn't have instantly looked at someone who was african and thought slave as we unfortunately would think today perhaps yeah it's interesting particularly in the way as you suggest that um, people of different skin colors are, are represented as, as different figures and there's no discrimination uh, how 19th century racists or people who believe in the slave trade, how they would have viewed this art, especially since they saw themselves as somehow continuing the European tradition. Do you have any anecdotes or any evidence of, of how uh, people who justified the slave trade looked at this tradition of art? Well, they would have hated it. They would have hated any um, evidence of Black humanity because it completely um, neutralized or completely um, took away their power. And so that's why most of the time when you talk about history, we would not talk about this. Um, this is not something that is popular because during the beginnings of the transatlantic slave trade, you start to see a shift in art you start to see black racialized art. So now you start to see when they dehumanize black figures, you start to see um, when you dehumanize black females, you over-sexualize them, you start to see these things change. So there's no more of this neutrality, um, racial neutrality. Of course, there is still art, of course, that's positive, but you start to see an overwhelming amount of negative art because they had to have this negative propaganda so that, you know, everyone who was in a country that was profiting off of the slave trade or colonization would view Africans as something negative or something to be feared. And so it, it even got to the point where when you look at, let's say, somewhere like ancient Egypt, when they were studying ancient Egypt during the 19th century, they completely removed um, African um, African anything from ancient Egypt. They completely removed this African Africanity, I would say, from ancient Egypt so that they could still laud all of the greatness that they could not remove. Of course, they couldn't ignore the pyramids or, or all of the wonderful things that they were taking back um, to display, but they had to say that it wasn't really African. It was 
ancient Egyptian. And so all of these things were really um, to remove blackness from really the historical record so that they could remake it or rewrite it. Yeah, Zoe, I'd never really thought about it in these terms, but it's really interesting. You're, you focus a lot on Northern European art. You have some, some images from the master of Alkmaar, a very famous piece of art. Also, uh, lots of portraits, a portrait of a Moor, for example, by the Dutch Renaissance painter Jan Mostart. Uh, and yet it was the Dutch who were in many ways responsible for the birth of the slave traders, the dominant sea power, one of the dominant sea powers of the 17th and 18th century. Uh, you have more on Northern European than Southern European art than on, on Renaissance art. I wonder why. Well, there wasn't any particular reason, um, but I was trying to separate it into some of the main um, focal points of Black art history. And so when it came to even just, you mentioned the Dutch Golden Age, it's so funny how even though, you know, like you said, they were profiting in a large way from the slave trade, it was very funny how also their art was depicting, you know, Black people. And you see um, famous artists like Rembrandt painting Black figures in very positive ways, not negative ways. Mm. So it was, it was a very strange sort of, it, it was hypocritical, hypocritical in a way but at the same time it's something wonderful to see that black people who came to um, the Netherlands were able to live a somewhat normal life we see uh, evidence of their baptisms and their marriages and the fact that they were trying to live a, a good life there and so it, it's a very um, a, a very small moment in time but it's so interesting and um, it's just I, I love that section of the book talking. Yeah, about I really enjoyed that section. And I was really intrigued that you, we don't have any images for people uh, watching. We don't have any images of Rembrandt, but certainly uh, he's my favorite artist. And uh, the fact that you use Rembrandt, some of his images is particularly intriguing. What about, of course, the slavery and colonialism are bound up together. You have a lot of art uh, in terms of, uh, black models um, in English and French art, uh, sort of neoclassical art. Um, how, was there a connection between the way in which uh, black people were represented as models in Western art and the birth of um, Western European, particularly colonialism, the, uh, the colonialization, particularly of Africa? Oh, definitely. So once this starts happening in England, you see in the art that black people usually when you when you look up black people in, in European art, especially in England and France, usually they are placed in the lower left hand corner, lower right hand corner, upper left hand corner, but always in the margins, always holding a basket of fruit, something that is, quote unquote, exotic, something that de depicts their uh, Africanness, maybe a turban with a feather. And so usually they're on the side and they really are in a servant position. So that's something that's very popular. You will see hundreds of those and really black little black boys and, and even little black girls. But it was usually little black boys were a huge status symbol, kind of like having an iPhone or Apple Watch or, or Starbucks or something like that. It was just something that was common. Everyone who was everyone who was wealthy 
wanted to have a, a black servant in their household because it was a symbol of wealth. It was a symbol of the fact that you were profiting off of colonialism. Um, and so that was something that was very popular. And so you'll see that usually that's one of the most um, popular forms of having a black uh, person depicted in European art. But sometimes you do get, like you showed a party angling, you do get one that is a little more uh, positive, a little more, uh, uh, not romanticized, but more positive. Yeah. That's one of my most favorite paintings. Yeah, this is by George Moreland, 1763 yeah. to 1804. And given that the issue of slavery was so politically controversial and divisive, not just in the United States, but in Europe, I assume that some artists who would have been opposed to slavery would have somehow articulated uh, their thoughts on this in their art. Yes, George Moreland was one of those artists who sort of had abolitionist or, or uh, tendencies or, or beliefs. And so we see that sort of in the way that he depicts this black servant. So even though he is still a, a servant of this family, you can still see a sense of, of togetherness with the group. He's not considered, you know, he's not drawn in a different way. He's not cartoonish. He's still there. He still has his humanity. And so you see that even though, you know, he's in that servant position on the side, he's still a part of the painting and George depicted it in that way. And so he was one of those artists who who made it, it was important to him to, to depict black people more positively and instead of the, the norm at the time. Let's move on then, uh, Zaria, to the second, um, second section in the book on, on black artists themselves. All, all the artists you've chosen are American, uh, I think. Um, are there others that you might have used from Europe, from France or the United Kingdom? Well, I did try to find uh, a few Black artists that I could also um, showcase, but unfortunately, most of them do come about in Europe uh, afterward, usually in the late 19th century, but mostly in the early 20th century onward. And so these four Black artists really were sort of the beginnings or the the only uh, Black artists at the time who were uh, operating in the art world in this way at such a high level. And why did you choose to, to end with the Harlem Renaissance? Well, I, I wanted to really showcase these four artists because in the U.S. at least, the Harlem Renaissance is uh, talked about or, or taught in schools just a little bit more. But I thought it was very important to showcase this starting point to show how these four artists really began something that was considered completely and totally just crazy, completely and totally impossible. Um, because until they decided that they wanted to be a part of art or the art world, uh, they were completely, Black people were completely barred and, and not allowed to be artists. It was not considered a career path at all for anyone who was either Black and, of course, even female as well. I mean, the most amazing story to me is is Edmonia Lewis. Uh, not only, obviously, is she Black, but obviously a woman as well, so so doubly remarkable as a, as a 19th century artist. Uh, tell me a little bit about Lewis. How did she do what she did? It's quite remarkable. And she ended up in Rome, in Italy. 
And Monia is just amazing. It's just she has one of the most amazing life stories. And she really lived up to her Native American name, which was Wildfire that her parents gave her when she was born. Um, so when she was born in New York, unfortunately, both of her parents, her father, who was from um, the West Indies and her mother, who was half black and then half Ojibwa, um, they both passed away. And so she ended up eventually um, being taken care of by her older brother, Samuel. And so after she was done with um, her school, she decided at some point that she wanted to be an artist and as you you'll see in the book she really just took everything that took the world by storm she did everything that she wanted to do she kind of set a trail of fire and so once she um, moved um, to start to start sculpting in Rome um, she decided that she was going to be a businesswoman she decided that she wasn't going to allow anyone to do any of the work for her because at the time um, male sculptors were trying to discredit women by saying that they were using um, workers to create all of their their material and so she decided once she um, had a studio that she was going to do it all by herself which is which is was a horrible and very hard task to do it was very time consuming but um, she decided that she was going to learn Italian. She was going to do all of this. And this was in her early 20s when she was 22, when she decided to do all of this. And so she she wasn't an older woman who had established her life. This was very much the beginning of her life or a coming of age story like we think of it today. Zaria, in the art world, was it as true as in, in music or in literature that uh, black people were treated differently in Europe from the United States? Did they, did they experience less discrimination? Were people more open to them as artists? There was a, some racism, but it was much better in Europe, which is why both uh, Edmonia, Henry, and Robert eventually um, worked, and 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 Henry and, and Edmonia lived in Europe for most of their lives. This is Henry Asawatana. Yes, yes, because, you know, in America, it was almost impossible. They tried to make it next to impossible for you to succeed as an artist. And so Henry moving to Paris and then Admonia moving to Rome really was the only way that they could start. They felt that they could really be taken seriously as artists. And so for Admonia, even though she was subjected to um, newspaper and media reports, you know, always calling her, you know, racialized terms such as wild or, or sort of talking about her work not being just or quite enough, not being elegant enough, or in Henry's case also, is he really African? Is he really Black? And so there was a lot of discussion about race when it came to them. But at the end of the day, they were still able to sell their work. They were able to live their lives, be paid for their work, and able to travel and exhibit. And so both of them, once they were able to establish their their artwork and their lives there in Europe, they were able to come back to the U.S. and to, to exhibit. But to be able to get to the high level that they were, they had to leave first. And so that was sort of, they were a part of that legacy of Black people leaving the U.S. Um, just as much as James Baldwin or, or um, different, you know, artists and musicians in the 20s and 40s who had to leave to move to Paris to pursue music and things of that nature. Of course, there was an intense debate within the black community in and out of America, particularly about um, how to how to make sense of the black experience. Some people were angrier, some more political. Did this manifest itself in the artwork of people like uh, Duncanson and, and Bannister and, and Tanner and, of course, um, Lewis in terms of 
ideas from Frederick Douglass or Du Bois or uh, Washington, who, who was, of course, more conciliatory towards uh, white America. Did, was, was their work political? And did they embrace the white traditions in art or were they trying to figure out their own traditions? Well, they all were very much wanted to be European painters and sculptors. They very much wanted to be a part of the European art world. But at the same time, uh, I would say Edmonia and Henry mostly were uh, decided that they wanted to depict racial um, issues, especially Edmonia, because Edmonia was so fearless. She wasn't afraid to depict Native American men and women. She wasn't afraid to depict a woman um, in sculpture with her death of the death of Cleopatra um, and Henry also painting um, um, to black men. But for the most part, when it comes to Edward and when it comes to Robert, for the most part, they really just stuck to landscapes. Um, they really just stuck to things that were, were not political, that uh, were not problematic, mostly because at the time, of course, you're fearful that no one is going to like your art or buy it if you talk about something racial, especially being a Black artist. Um, but sometimes um, when it comes to, you know, like Robert, he did sneak in a few things here and there, just tiny things. Um, but for the most part, they kind of stuck to the mainstream. But I'd say Edmonia, for sure, she broke the mold and kind of shocked people a little bit. And did they make careers as professional artists did they sell their art were they able to survive as primarily artists rather than having a day job and, and painting or sculpturing in the evening well they all struggled at first edward he struggled for many years he struggled trying to find someone who would instruct them him and most of them had to struggle to find an instructor because they wouldn't even be allowed into art schools but eventually all of them were able to succeed in being able to um, sell their art and do art full-time and even when it comes to henry and when it came to robert they became wealthy from their art, um, able to sell it. Um, but when it comes to Edward, he was more of a national artist. But when we talk about Robert, Edmonia, and Henry, they were able to internationally be known. And Henry even has um, one of his works at the Louvre. And so um, they all were very, very successful at, at the end of their lives. Um, and even with Edward, even though he wasn't really an international artist, he, he was able to win a national award. He was the first Black artist to win a national award in the U.S., which was amazing at the time. Was there pride within the community? How well known were these, these men and women, uh, Tanner and Lewis and Bannister and Duncanson within the African-American community? There was a lot of pride um, with Edmonia. She was a part of several lists about ex exceptional Black women of the time. And so um, a lot of the people in the Black community, they love to talk about Edmonia or talk about Edward or Henry because they were examples of Black humanity and of Black excellence. And so while you had all of the propaganda of the KKK and the propaganda of white supremacists, they at, on the, at the same exact time were creating sculptures and creating ma massive portraits and paintings that completely refuted everything that they were trying to you know, teach to everyone. And so they were wonderful examples for even children to look up to. And so when we talk about Henry, he kind of grew up right at the right at the moment when Edmonia and Edward were starting to become very successful. And so 
there was a centennial uh, exposition which was celebrating the the country's centennial. And at this centennial in Philadelphia in 1876, both um, Admonia and Edward were displaying work. And Henry was a teenager at the time, a 17-year-old. And so he was one of those people who was um, inspired by Edmonia and Edward. And that's why uh, Henry even had moved out of the U.S. He was so inspired by Edmonia, he was going to move to Rome, but ended up staying in Paris. And so they all inspired one another and inspired the Black community. And with Henry, um, once he was in his older age, once he was, um, you know, an older artist, Black artists of the 20s, like Palmer Hayden were and Hal Woodruff were coming to France, tracking Henry down because they wanted to hear um, his story and wanted to, to gain advice and wisdom from the old sage. And so it's just a, a very cool thing to see the sort of um, intersecting of lives between generations of Black artists and just Black people in general who are trying to, you know, survive and, and have a positive image and positive um, history or positive histories to be, to be told. Sarah, you dedicate the book, and I'm quoting now, it's a lovely dedication, for the seven-year-old girl always sitting in the corners of bookstores and her parents who sat right beside her. What do you want this seven-year-old girl to take from your book? Well, I would want the seven-year-old me who, when I would have, if I had have seen this book at the store, I probably would have freaked out. But seven-year-old me, um, I want her to know that there's pride in being Black. There's pride in being a Black woman that Black history is so much more than anyone would ever have told her, um, that Black history is something beautiful and it can be exciting and fun and revelatory and just a great experience. And it doesn't always have to surround victimhood and, and, and murder and, and genocide. And also that when you go to, that you can go to a Renaissance festival, you can dress up as medieval princesses and enjoy that because you don't have to keep yourself away from that side of history. You can enjoy all of it. So I really want everyone, little kids today and anyone who reads this book to take, to take that away, to see that black history can be fun and can be exciting and to really just look at everything from different frames, not just believe, you know, what has been presented, but also investigate and, and do some detective work and, and find the fun in that and finding, new ways to look at history.